Our Father, we have come this evening before you to listen to the teaching of your word. And Lord, we come knowing of all of the goodness that we have received from you, knowing all of the mercies that we have received from you. We come tonight not forgetful of your kindness towards us. Many of our friends and family members here at Trinity have traveled and you've seen them through their journeys. And many are yet on their way and you have been so kind and so gracious to them. Lord, we thank you also for all of the mercies and the blessings you have lavished upon us since the start of the year up to this moment. Lord, we ask that as we come tonight to study your word, you'll be gracious to us to bless us through the teaching of your word. We ask, O oh God, for the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that understanding might be given to as many who lack it, that clarity might be given to as many who lack it, that all of us seated here physically, and even those online, would have our hearts strangely warmed as a result of the truths that will be considered tonight. Oh Lord, we ask that you would deliver us from distraction and that our hearts and our minds may be fixed upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have your seats. Good evening once again. By way of reminder, can anybody remind us of what we considered last week, Tuesday? That's obviously for those who were here last week, Tuesday. What did we consider last week, Tuesday? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, what have we been considering? What topic have we been considering? Christ the mediator. And what is a mediator? Sorry, first of all, who is Christ? Eh? Oh, Christ is the mediator. Who is Christ? Is this somebody from Ogbomosho? Who is Christ? Where did he come from? Is Christ his name? Is Christ the name of somebody? Is it a title? Who is Christ? Well, is your mic on? Well, in the last, um, in the last Tuesday uh, Bible study, we looked at uh, the unity of Christ as God and Christ as man. Okay. So when you ask who is Christ, well, we've, we've seen in our previous Bible study that Christ is God and Christ is man as well. Okay. So Christ is the God-man. Yeah. Okay. Let me just do a brief recap for those of us who have not been here and those of us who have been here and have forgotten. Or even for those of us who are on and off, whether virtually or, or physically. So we've been considering the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And we have been in chapter, seven, chapter 8 for the past seven weeks. 
So in the past seven weeks, we've covered the first seven paragraphs of chapter 8 of the Confession. First of all, we looked at how God ordained Christ to be a mediator. We saw that in paragraph 1. We saw how Christ, who was the second person in the Holy Trinity, became a man, which we called the incarnation of Christ. We saw that in paragraph 2. We saw how Christ was thoroughly furnished by God to execute the act of mediator. We saw that in paragraph 3. In paragraph 4, we considered the end of Christ's mediation, which we found was to fulfill the law and to bear our punishment, our own just punishment for sin. We saw in paragraph 5 that Christ is both the offering and the offerer. So he is the one who makes the offering, and he is the offering being made at the same time. In paragraph 6, two weeks ago, we looked at how the work of Christ applies to the saints of all ages. So that the saints who were saved in the Old Testament throughout the entire period of the Old Testament were saved through Christ. God did not have a different scheme of salvation which changed from the Old to the New Testament. We saw that in paragraph 6. In paragraph 7, last week, we looked at how Christ's mediation relates to his two natures, the human and the divine nature. And we looked at something called uh, the communication of attributes in Latin, communicatio in the matum. That's Latin. It's just communi communication of attributes, how the attributes um, are communicated across the two um, natures. And tonight we'll be looking at paragraph 8 of the confession. And I have titled this Bible study, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. So if you're looking for a, a, a title or a topic for the Bible study, it is Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Lest someone will accuse me of plagiarism, plagiarism somewhere, I am borrowing that title from a book written by Scottish theologian an American professor at Westminster Theological Seminary sometime in the 20th century. I'm copying from the title of a book he wrote called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. His name is John Murray, Professor John Murray. So I'm copying the title. I'm just lifting off. I'm not lifting his book to the Bible study because we're looking at the confession, but I am lifting the title of his book, because I find it appropriate for what we are going to study tonight. If you have these little pamphlets, you can um, take it up, and then I would walk us through this particular paragraph, and I wrote, I, I put down two different wordings. The first is the original, and the second is the updated. So somebody who finds the original difficult might not, would not necessarily find the updated difficult. So let's read the original wordings of paragraph 8. It says, To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same. The same referring to what? Eternal redemption. So then you see where we got the title from. Obtained, accomplished, and applied. Making intercession for them. Uniting them to himself by his spirit revealing to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom, in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful 
and unsearchable dispensation, and all of the and all of free and absolute grace, without any condition for sin in them to procure it. So I don't believe this sentence has a full stop. So let's look at um, the updated one. It says, to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and imparts it. Full stop. He intercedes for them, unites them to himself by his spirit, and reveals to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. He persuades them to believe and obey and governs their hearts by his word and spirit. He overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom, using methods and ways that are perfectly consistent with his wonderful and unsearchable, unsearchable governance. All these things are by free and absolute grace, apart from any condition for obtaining it that is foreseen in them. If we want to take, about, if we want to take apart this particular paragraph, it can take us weeks. Because the, the number of things that are present in this paragraph, are, they are a bit intimidating because in this paragraph you have union with Christ, you have intercession of Christ, you have the work of the Spirit, you have the work of Christ, it's a lot. But I trust that God will help us to go through this paragraph without confusion. If I to summarize what the paragraph is saying in a simple sentence, it is this, that Christ obtains salvation for his people and he applies it. That's a summary of all we've just read. Christ obtains salvation for his people and he applies it. And I'll take this Bible study under two headings. First of all, heading one, redemption accomplished. And the second heading we'll consider tonight is redemption applied. So let's start with the first heading then. Redemption accomplished. And the first question we must answer is what is redemption? Can anybody help me? What is redemption? What do you understand by the word redemption? I'm asking knowing that two weeks ago in our Sunday school, we looked at three things that flowed from Christ's death, propitiation, redemption, and reconciliation. So in light of that, even you, Shekinah and Light, your attendance on this school, what is redemption? Anybody? You want to answer, the mic will be given to you. What is redemption? Yes, you can. Redemption means to be bought back. To be bought back, okay. Redemption means to be bought back. Any other person? What does it mean to redeem? What does it mean to redeem? To free someone to held captive. Pardon? To free someone held captive. To free someone held captive, okay. So we're basically saying it has to do with release, some kind of release. So redemption, one way to view redemption is that redemption is to release by payment. So yes, of course, it involves release, but not free release. So it involves getting something back, but there must be payment. So if somebody is freed without payment, it's not necessarily redemption. There's payment involved. Or to look at it another way is to be freed by ransom. And a practical example would be Nigeria of today, where people are kidnapped anyhow. So some people tried to travel from Abuja to Kaduna in a train, and they were kidnapped. And many of the family members had to do what? They had to sell all their property, 
took the money and bought them back. That's the idea behind the biblical word redemption. It is to buy back. To redeem something is to free it by ransom. And turn to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 where we find the Apostle Paul writing that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Christ we have redemption. And the Apostle tells us the means through which redemption comes, it is through what's his blood. So if redemption is to be bought with a price or to release by payment, the payment here is what? His blood. Now, when the Bible talks about the blood of Christ, usually we should be careful of this idea that it's talking about literal blood, like blood, so there's something so magnificent, so great about the blood of Jesus Christ that people have written even certain kinds of songs that over that in a sense, idolize the blood of Christ. When we talk about the blood of Christ, we're talking basically about the death of Christ. So that we were redeemed by the death of Christ. The payment was in Christ's work, Christ's atoning sacrifice. The question is, what are we being redeemed from? Basically, we are being redeemed from sin. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Christ bought us back released us from sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says, Therefore he, Jesus Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Since a death has occurred that redeems them, that releases them from the guilt of sin, that releases them from sin. Christ has redeemed us from sin. That's one aspect of redemption. But you know, there's another aspect of redemption that the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. The redemption of our bodies, which is basically the redemption that happens in the future, which is our, our bodies. So now, if you are saved, you have been redeemed from sin. And if you are saved, you will be redeemed. Your body will be redeemed. In the present time, Christ has dealt with our sin problem. In the future, Christ will deal with all of our problems, all of our imperfection, the imperfection that comes with this body, the sickness, the cancer, the weakness, the tiredness, the disease. Christ is going to deal with that in the future. But primarily, when we talk about redemption, we often refer to the first, which is salvation in the world. That Christ saved us by dying in our stead. He paid the price that purchased us unto God. The confession tells us that Christ actually obtained eternal redemption. I just want to be careful to take everything word by word as much as possible with the time we have. To obtain is to get, to acquire, to secure. Christ actually got it when he died. Christ is not... Um, and I don't want to run too fast. I don't want to run faster than myself. When Christ died, he actually bought. He actually acquired. He actually has it. It's in his hand. You know, they say a bed in hand is better than two in the bush or something like that. It's in his hand. Christ actually obtained eternal redemption. But the confession is also telling us something important that 
Christ obtained redemption for a particular group of people. Look at the updated version. It says, to all those for whom Christ has obtained redemption. So there's a particular people for whom Christ has obtained redemption. At this point, I'm going to take us into the doctrine of particular redemption. I'm not the one who said limited, unlimited, or limited atonement. Because that's what many people will hear. They were talking about limited or unlimited atonement. Regardless of the word you want to use, what I'm talking about tonight is particular redemption. And the Bible is clear about this, that the redemption that Christ obtained by his death is for a particular group of people. Let's look at three passages that will help buttress this point. All three are in the Gospel of John. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Sorry, don't worry, we'll read later. Let me just rush through by reading from here. John chapter 6 verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me. So the first thing I want us to establish here is that Christ actually accomplishes redemption for those given to him by the Father. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And I will lose nothing of all he has given me. So first of all, there are a particular group of people given to Christ by the Father. Are we clear on that? He said, all that the Father gives me. You know, when somebody gives you something, it's different from what the person has. Or it's different from the set of what is available. So you come to me and ask me for money. And I have, maybe I have 10,000 in my wallet. And I tell you, I can only give you 1,000. What I have given you is the 1,000. So if you're going to use it, assuming I'm your father and you are my son, you are limited to, this is the word limited again, you are limited to what I have given you. So when Christ, not before, before Christ came down, to earth, that we've looked at all these things, incarnation, Christ had a particular amount of people given to him by the Father. Are they few or many? It doesn't matter. The fact is, a particular amount of people are given to him. Are we clear on that point? Next is John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 15 and verse 16. It says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Another word now. The people that God gave Christ, he laid down his life for them, and here he calls them what? The sheep. So Christ laid down his life for the sheep. The sheep are the ones that the Father gave to him. Are we together? Now, the Bible uses other words for this particular group of people. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we are told that she will bear a son, that's to Mary now, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save who? He will save his people. His business is not with the remaining 9,000 in my wallet, but the 1,000 that belongs to him. 
He's going to save his people. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. It says, pay careful attention. This is Apostle Paul to the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for what? To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Again, we're looking at this idea of blood, death, obtain, redemption. So Christ redeemed who? With his blood, his church. The same thing is seen in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. Christ laid down his life for the church. Next, let's look at John chapter 17, verse 19. John 17, verse 19. It says, And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Now, the thing with the high priestly prayer, I'm actually looking at verse 9, not 19. John chapter 17, verse 9. It says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the whole world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, I find this very, very interesting. And I think we should find it interesting as well. That Christ did not pray for everybody. He's not praying for, Lord, bless every man and woman in the world. And let them have food to eat today. Christ prays for a particular group of people. Now, we're going to look at this next week, if God spares our life. But let me establish this here. The priestly work of Christ, when we talk about the, the three offices of Christ, which we'll look at in detail next week has to do with two particular things, two major things. First of all, has to do with his atoning work, which is really his death, and his intercessory work, which he started on earth and continues to do now. The two of them are linked. It is those that Christ has paid the price for that he prays for. Are we together? It is those for whose sin Christ has made atonement that he prays for. So, Assuming, I'm using my 1,000 Naira illustration again. It is that 1,000 that he prays for. If there are 10,000 people in the world and Christ has 1,000, Christ is praying, praying for 1,000 because he died for 1,000. Of course, there are objections to this truth of particular redemption. What are some of the objections? Before we treat some of the objections, eh, let me put a caveat. There's something I've seen that is quite common with those of us who associate ourselves with Reformed theology, which is that we often find it easy to mock people who don't see eye to eye with us on certain doctrines. Actually, it's actually the pride of life. It's actually the pride of life. Let me say it. It's, you know, uh, this man, um, Jerry Bridges, wrote a book many years back called, "Is late now, uh, Respectable Sins. And in that book, he's saying, there are certain sins that we usually frown at. I mean, if somebody commits adultery here, everybody will shout. You know, there are, there are some things you just mentioned. I you open your mouth and say, ah. So if man can sleep with his daughter, ah. So this thing can happen, ah. So somebody could steal this amount of money. We do it every day, actually, in Nigeria. I mean, it was yesterday. I went to pick up some books from the park that came from Lagos. And I entered the, I, I took a boat, a, a, a taxi from there back to the office. And then the man was lamenting. Typical Nigerian lamentation. That how can a Nigerian, one man, take the money of the whole country? So for us, that's a, that's a terrible sin. 
That, ah, Tinibu has houses in the UK, Tinibu has houses in the US, his children are comfortable. And here, people are struggling to buy chicken to celebrate Christmas. But then there are other things that generally we don't even pay attention to. Now, let me come to us. We don't usually pay attention to the sin of pride. It's very rare to hear us really talk about pride and apply it to ourselves. Talk about pride in a general sense. If somebody is proud about what he has, somebody can be proud about the knowledge he has, about the right doctrine he has that people don't have. And so when you go on, on social media sometimes, and people are saying, I don't really agree with this idea that Christ redeems a particular group of people. Then you come with your, your theological caps and you make mockery of people's position. We should not make mockery of the position of the other man, especially if he's trying to make his position from the Bible. Especially if he's trying to make his argument from the Bible. There are some people who don't make the arguments from the Bible. Those are not the ones I'm talking about. For example, someone will say, eh, if Christ died for, if Christ actually redeems a group of people, then eh, I cannot believe in the gospel or something like that, or eh, this God is not my God, without bringing a biblical passage to say, this is why I think this is not true. Those are not the people I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody who genuinely struggles and says, I don't think I really understand this thing you're calling this particular redemption that you are talking about. And I hope that if such a person is here or online, that this study might be of help to you. So let's look at some of the objections from the Bible. The first objection is, does the Bible not say that Jesus Christ died for the world? Does the Bible not say that? Look at John chapter 1 verse 29. John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day, John, the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the sin of the world, not the sin of the church. Right? Are we together? I want us to really converse. Not the sin of the church, not the sins of his people, but the sin of the world. John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life not to the church, but to the world. John chapter 62, verse 51. It says, sorry, we're going to be looking at many scriptures, so just be flipping. It says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. How do we respond to this? The Bible seems to say that Jesus actually died for the world. Firstly, when the Bible uses the word world, it is used in different ways. We can't come to this passage and say Jesus died for the world. Hence, redemption is not particular, but redemption is general. We can't, we can't say that. Why? Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Is, is the Bible lying? Or like, so what do we think it means? When, when Caesar Augustus said all the world should be registered, So assuming they were 
I don't know. I don't think this is true. But assuming Nigeria, there are some, there are some, like Asian guys here who are not wearing clothes. Were they part of this world? At this point, America, American and American colonies had not been discovered. But I don't know. Maybe Red Indians were already living there, in in America, by this time. He's talking about the known world, basically. At this time, Rome, Rome was a world power. And Rome basically controlled everywhere that was everywhere. Sorry, everywhere that was somewhere. Rome basically had her government controlling those places. And so here, the Bible is not talking about every single inch of this universe, but the known world. John chapter 1, verse 10. John chapter 1, verse 10, it says... He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Ha! Yet the world did not know him. Is John trying to say that he's expected that every single human being in the world should have known Jesus? Is that what John is saying? You know, recently the FIFA World Cup just ended, last week, two days ago, and a the South American country took the World Cup. And this argument goes on every time among football fans, even among those, even those who don't know football, they know it. Who is the greatest of all time? Who is the GOAT? Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi? CR7 or LM10? Who is the greatest of all time? And sometimes when they want to argue, and these people don't have... Now, here tonight, I am neutral. So I am not saying Ronaldo is the greatest of all time. In fact, Pele is the greatest of all time. But that's by the way. So sometimes when you want to argue and they don't have arguments again, they now say, Cristiano Ronaldo is the most followed person on social media. So he's more popular than Messi. So more, more people know him in the world than they know Messi. Hence, Cristiano Ronaldo is the GOAT. When I hear that, I'm like, okay, eh, maybe because Ronaldo has more followers, he might be greater in a sense. But my father does not know Ronaldo. If you take a picture of Ronaldo and show it to my own father, he doesn't know Ronaldo. My late grandmother, before she died, she didn't die long ago, she had no idea who Ronaldo was. So even Ronaldo, who is the most popular person on social media, which is a, a vast, is like, it's a... It's a valid measurement for things today. How many people follow you on social media? You want to publish a book, they ask you how many people are following you on social media. Because if you don't have many followers, the book will not sell. So the book publishers will say, ah, get your social media rich in, in check, something like that. Ronaldo, who is the most followed person on social media, is not known in many parts of the world. So how do we expect that Jesus would have been known without social media? John is not saying that everybody in the whole world, every single person should have known him. Are we together? But to the people to which he came, Jesus was not recognized. Acts chapter 11, verse 28, Agabus predicted a worldwide famine. And I was thinking about it. If a famine actually happens in the whole world, we are done for. So it was a known world. So the Bible uses world in different ways. Okay? But when it comes to salvation, and the Bible talks about Jesus dying for all, in the world, Jesus dying for the world, usually the Bible is talking about all nations, not just Jews. 
Because at this point in time, when Jesus came to the earth, salvation is for the Jews. That's what Jesus even said. Abi? So Paul said it in Romans 1 and Romans 2, that to the Jews belong the oracles of God, to the Jews belong the prophet, to the Jews belong the law, to the Jews belong the circumcision. So the Jews, actually, if there was somebody to be saved, the Jews are the saved nation. They are the elect nation of God. But at the time Jesus was coming, the mystery of salvation, as Paul talks about in many of his episodes, was being revealed that salvation is not for the Jews only, but for the Jews and the Gentiles. In other words, when the Bible talks about world, the Bible is talking about all nations. All nations. What makes up the world? Nations. Both the Greeks and the Gentiles, the Greeks rather, and the Jews and the barbarians and the Scythians, everybody. Salvation is for everybody. That's what the Bible is saying. So in John chapter 1 verse 29, when John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. He was not talking about every single person in the world. He was rather talking about the fact that this salvation is no longer for all the Jewish nation. God is now going to save people from every nation on earth. Second objection. Does the Bible not say that Jesus Christ died for all men? Classical text. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. The way I'm seeing it, uh, we'll not finish this Bible study today. But some things are worth while. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. See what the Bible says. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should repent, but that all should reach repentance. Okay. Hebrews chapter 5, sorry, Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. It says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for, for everyone. Two more scriptures. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, just before Philemon Hebrews. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, not some men. And um, Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Let's just stop there. I mean, there are scriptures, many scriptures. But I want us to just sample some. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Again, when the Bible uses the word all, actually, how do we solve this problem from these passages? The first way to solve the problem is to take note of the context in which these statements were made. Take note of the context. The context is key. Context, in this case, is king. So let's take some of these passages. First of all, in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, in other passages you might take note of, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, when the Bible uses all, the Bible is using all with a qualifier, all those in Christ. So look at Romans chapter 5, verse 18 again. Therefore, as one trespass leads to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men in Christ. Now, if it is not all men in Christ that the Bible is talking about, then it means that everybody in this world is going to be saved. And I know you don't believe that. Even if you say, I don't believe in particular redemption, I know you don't, I want to believe, you don't believe that everybody will be saved. I was reading a book not long ago, and I've just called the name of the person anyways. You might not know him. He's a professor at Yale. At Yale. His name is Miroslav Volf. Miroslav V-O-L-F. I think it's Wolf or Volf. I don't know. And he was talking about how God forgives. The book is about giving and forgiving. How God forgives. And he made a statement in that book that just made me... I took my pen and I just said, ah, what's this one? I marked it. And he was saying that forgiveness is potential and actuality. That in Jesus Christ, God has forgiven every single person in the world. But a man has to come and accept it before the forgiveness is complete. And I was like, where in the Bible do you find that God has not offered forgiveness of sins, that God has actually forgiven the sin of every single person because of Jesus Christ? But that is when the person now comes that the forgiveness is complete. I said, okay. God has forgiven every single person in Jesus Christ. That's the error we fall into if we interpret these all men as every single man without qualification. There's a qualifier. Christ died for all men in him. And I don't want to, we don't have time. Romans chapter 5, actually, from verse 12, is talking about the two heads, the two federal heads, those men who are in Adam who earned damnation through the disobedience of Adam, and the men and women, of course, who are in Christ, who earn righteousness, not earn, who get righteousness because of Christ's obedience. So he's talking about Adam and Christ. One disobeyed, one obeyed. One disobedient led to condemnation. One's obedience leads to, leads to righteousness. So the Bible is not saying all men. Let's look at one more scripture with this idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. Which is basically the same idea, the two heads, but in a different form in the context of resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So you can take this scripture and now say, okay, that means every single person, both sinner and saved, will be made alive. But not every person is made alive now. Made alive to God now. So that's not what the Bible is saying. It's talking about those who were in Christ. All in Adam on one hand and all in Christ on one hand. So the context will usually solve this problem of is Jesus' is, is Jesus's death not saving everybody? Redemption is particular, not general. Let's deal with the second class of text. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Salvation has appeared, bringing for all people. Again, the context is similar to the one we looked at before when we talked about the world. All classes of men. All classes of men. Salvation has appeared, bringing salvation to all men in that sense. The salvation did not appear to Jews only. Salvation did not appear to Gentiles only. Salvation has appeared to all men. 
Third category of text, which is one we found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, or Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 and 6. And those passages are talking to all in the sense of Jews and Gentiles. Now, there's a bit of, there's a bit of trickiness with interpreting 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Because you have to interpret the entire 2 Peter from the beginning to get where Peter is coming from. Peter is actually talking about the elect from 2 Peter. He's talking about the elect before he gets to that point. God doesn't want any to pray, but that all should come to repentance. All in that category. That can be one interpretation of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. But then the Bible generally, the New Testament does not give the idea that Jesus Christ died for every single person in the world. That's the point I'm trying to make. The Bible does not say that Jesus died for every single person in the world. Did Jesus die for the world? Yes, in a sense. But there's a difference between saying, and let me give you the classical example of what the, the classical way of trying to understand these things. God causes the sun and the rain to shine to both believers and unbelievers. In that sense, God loves all of his creature. That's a manifestation of a certain type of love that God has for the world. It is because of God's love and care that the world has not finished. It is because of God's care for the world that in his providence, he governs the affairs of this earth, that the earth is still standing today. It's because of God. But there's a special kind of love that God has for his own people, which is different from the general love and kindness that and benevolence God shows to Believers and non-believers. Another way to put it, for those of us who are married, you should love all women in church. But you can't love all women the exact same way you would love your wife. As a woman, you should care for all men, all brothers you see. But there's a special care which you have for the one brother that is your husband. So we see here then, that despite the fact that the Bible actually says that Christ died for all, or Christ died for the world, the Bible is not saying that the death of Christ is effective for every one of them. Are we together? Is this clear? Is it complicated? So when we read the Bible then, we should read it in the context in which those statements are made. You can't just take one passage, which is what people do sometimes when they argue. Okay, first, first John chapter 2, verse 2, propitiation for all the world, all the world. But that one is not even difficult. It says those of us in this room, eh, Christ is a propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the world. So there are people outside this room who will constitute the world. Are we together? The same way Jesus, in John chapter 7, his brothers came to him and said, show yourself to the world. They didn't tell Jesus, find one ladder that will take you to the, high, to the highest place and then stand there and put your hand like that and say, hey, this is me. Show yourself to the whole world. That's not what they were saying. So we always need to read in context and understand what the Bible means when the Bible says all and what the Bible means when the Bible says world. So let's go back to where we started from, which is basically where we will end. That to all those for whom Christ has obtained redemption, Christ has obtained redemption for a certain group of people. I will introduce the second part. Those for whom he applied redemption, he also effectually Apply so those for whom he obtained redemption, he effectually applies and communicates it to them. 
Christ has accomplished redemption and Christ applies redemption. So before we go home thinking, having headache in our head, how does Christ, Christ apply redemption? After all, we talk about the Trinity as being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the economy of the Trinity, we've talked about that before, so I don't need to explain that. But when the persons in the Trinity are doing their work, huh, we usually say that it is the Father that sends and it is the Son who goes and accomplishes and it is the Spirit who applies. So when we come to our salvation, we say the Father predestines and elects, the Son dies, and then the Spirit applies. But the confession is saying that Christ actually applies redemption. Is it, is it um, how do you say it now? Is it inconsistent with Scripture? Not necessarily. Because when it comes to Redemption. The re- application of redemption is actually Christ's work, which he accomplishes through the Holy Spirit. So it is his work, and he is the one who gives, who gets the work and applies it to those, but through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And I think John chapter, John chapter 16 will help us a bit to understand this idea that Christ is the one who actually effects or applies it. John chapter 3. John chapter 16, 13 to 14. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that will come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is whose, what is mine, and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit is basically taking what is Christ and declaring to us. So in that sense, we can actually say Christ is actually the applier of our redemption. And there are six things we'll look at next week. Six particular benefits that flow from Christ applying his redemption. But as we go tonight, a few points of application based on all we've looked at today is that Christ actually obtained our redemption. Christ did not obtain the potential potentiality of our redemption, which is Christ did not do a kind of work that will be dependent upon whether something else happens or whether something else does not happen. Are we together? Christ did not do it in a way that one time we were doing Bible study many years back and we said, how does God know the future? And one of the, we were not theologians, of course. We didn't really know the Bible. We were just children. And we said, one of the ways to explain this idea of God knowing the future is God knows every single possibility. So that as I am standing here now, God knows, so they are like, imagine there are lines from my head. So God knows where all of those lines are going to end. So that God does not know one end, God knows many ends. And that's not biblical. God knows the end from the beginning, the actual end, the real end, which we are living out. In our salvation, Christ did not apply the possibility so that depending on which line we follow, we will now reach the one that Christ has died for. But Christ actually died. He purchased us. Christ obtained. He acquired. He got it. It's in his hand for us that are his people. And if we are in Christ, he has applied that redemption effectually in time to us. You know, sometimes when we go through tough times, we often ask ourselves if God is really with us. When we go through difficulty and we say, ah, ah, I thought I was a Christian. 
I thought I had a loving father. I thought I had a, a brother who cares more than my earthly brother, the one who is closer than a friend. The brother, that brother, or the friend who is closer than a brother. Christ is down, either way you want to put it. I thought Jesus is my friend. Why then do I have to go through pain and difficulty and hardship? It's when we come before the word of God and we remember that Christ actually saved us. It's an encouragement for us in our suffering and in our difficulty, in our pain, that he actually got it and that we are actually in his hands. It is not dependent on, and I'm careful, I don't, I don't have time to qualify, it's not dependent on what I have done, which is where the last line will come helpful, but we are not looking at it. Next week we'll look at it if God spares our lives. That all of these things flow from God's grace to us. And that you are in Christ if you are a believer. And nothing can snatch you from his hand. That's how effective his work of redemption is. That he has gotten it, he did the work, and he has poured it upon your head. And so even if sometimes we go through darkness, where we look for light and we can't find light, we go through confusion, even in our walks with God, when we go through those seasons when we are like the psalmist who said that darkness has become my closest friend, when we go through those times, we are still in Christ. When we go through those life challenges that seem to overwhelm us and beat us down, we are still in Christ. And there is nothing that will lose you, that will lose you from his hand, that will drag you away from his hand. We can trust Christ. He has applied our redemption. He has accomplished our redemption. He has applied it to us. And the end, of course, is glorification. And if that chain has started, nothing is going to take it away. Nothing is going to stop it from going on. And so the question I ask us tonight, before we take our questions, is let us examine then in whom we have put our trust. Let us know what we are trusting in. Because you see this question of trust there, it is seen in our practical day-to-day decisions. The question of, it's easy to say I trust in Jesus Christ. After all, I come to church, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus died for my sins. Are you actually trusting in Jesus then? Are you putting your faith in him, in the person for your salvation? Or do you have many other gods in your life that you are trusting in, you are hoping on, and say, ah, last I see this one, no work, this one day. It, it, this thing comes, even in small matters like getting a job. At the time of getting a job, I would say, ah, after prayer is not the, ah, this, this is an option. Are we actually trusting in Christ? Do you trust in him for your salvation? Not just salvation, for your very life, your very breath in this next moment. And I pray that God will help us to know the answer to this question and to know it for ourselves. Do you have any questions? How many questions do we have? Do you have no, I mean, how many people have questions? Do you have a question? One? Okay. So let's take Bermano's question. Bro Israel, you have a question. So let's start from Bermano. Two questions. Bro Israel, one question. Bro God, you one question. And then we'll pray and go. Yeah, my first question was, so you... Talked about how Christ died for a particular group of people and not necessarily the whole world. So I've had a conversation with someone before that turned into a debate, sort of. And one thing probably the person will ask you in this situation is in Reformed theology, uh, we see a doctrine called doctrine of irresistible grace. 
So if the grace God has bestowed upon us is so irresistible, why is it that Christ, that irresistible grace cannot be applied to the whole world? That's your first question. Yes. Second question. Second question is, um, when having a discussion about this, this is a very difficult discussion. I had this discussion with my roommate in university as well. He's an atheist. And um, I think it was not helpful mm. in discussing about salvation. As now was not, that shouldn't even have been brought up first. So when doing evangelism, mm. is this, you know, is this something we put in our minds or is this something we, okay. we bring up during a conversation as well? Okay, let me try to answer those two questions quickly. So, um, there's actually a third objection I didn't touch because of time. And that's the objection of the objection to particular redemption, which is that the Bible says we should go into the world and preach the gospel to everybody. If Jesus has actually redeemed a particular group of people, whether small or large, then what is the use of preaching? Or how should we preach if that doctrine is true? And the thing is, when it comes to this doctrine, there's actually no example we have in the Bible where the preaching of the gospel is followed by the doctrine of election or predestination or particular redemption. So I, I, I did it too. I went through the book of Acts. I looked at some of the, the, the sample sermons. So when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached, preached, preached. Then he reached to the point of this Jesus Christ, you people have crucified. And then they asked Peter, what shall we do to be saved? And the next thing Peter does is repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children. So that is actually the preaching of the gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That God has made available someone who bore or will bear your sin. And that you deserve the wrath of God, but Christ has made available and he bore every single inch, every single drop of God's wrath. When you believe in him, forgiveness is given to you. The condition, the gospel preaching is basically conditional. Come to Christ and receive life. Come to Jesus and be saved. That's gospel preaching. Now, the practical example of somebody who actually not struggle with this, who did a good job of this is George Whitfield, who was a 17th century evangelist who preached across the two, uh, the two continents, Europe and America. He was a Calvinist. Staunch Calvinist. But he never let that Calvinist... Let me change my sentence now. But when he preached the gospel, he was conscious of the fact that the message that saves people is not particular redemption. So to argue about particular redemption with somebody who is even an atheist, first of all, is not, is not really wise. Because the person is even saying there's no God. And then we are saying there's God, and the God might not have saved you in his plan. We don't preach particular redemption. There's no place in the Bible where the preaching of the gospel goes along with Jesus Christ died for a select number of people. So that's the answer. It's not found in the Bible. And there are lots of sermons in the book of... You can try it later. Just go through the book of Acts. See if anybody did that. The other question about... It's basically in the decree of God. In the decree of God, those things happened long ago. So why doesn't God grant irresistible grace to this person? It's in his decree. Those things we are not aware of. 
And moreover, I don't think this is actually a topic to be argued about. Because if somebody is really saved, if somebody is really saved, eh, whether I believe in particular redemption or not, is inconsequential to his salvation. If somebody is really saved by Jesus Christ, whether he believes in particular redemption, as long as the person can say, Christ redeemed me, his theory of the other people eh, is not what takes him to salvation. It's, do you know that Christ has saved you? Have you applied to Christ for salvation? If the person has done that, whether he believes this other person is going to be saved or not is not the problem. The doctrine of that's not consequential to salvation. Where does it come? It comes a place for our Christian faith, for building us up in the faith, for helping us know how better to even preach the gospel. Because if we believe that God will save, God has saved, God has, God has kept some, then we must preach. He will save those who we will save. So those are two attempts, quick attempts to the question. Brother Israel. I, I have two questions. Also. Okay. One, like, if some certain persons are saved by God and surely they will, they will go to heaven and they will come to Christ then what is the essence of evangelism? Okay. Why do we go for evangelism? Second question. And you say Christ is the sacrifice and the sacrifice, you know. Okay, yeah, when I was in the vision. Yeah, how? I don't understand okay. that. So the first one about, um, what's it called now? The first one is about um, evangelism. evangelism. Paul said in First Corinthians that it is through the folly of preaching that God saves people. In Romans chapter 10, that people will not hear the gospel that will lead to their salvation if somebody does not preach. So one quick answer to that is evangelism is the means through which people will hear the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ. So evangelism is the means. It's just like prayer. If God knows all things and is all powerful, why do we pray? Prayer is the means through which we air our request to God and then he hears us and answers us. So it's the, the thing about ends and means, that there are ends, but God has ordained means to the end. So, God has said, okay, this is what's going to happen. He knows everything that will happen. But it's also ordained that this is the means through which this thing will happen. So, this is an end. Ten people will be saved in this program. But there's a means through the preaching of the gospel, through evangelism. Now, our problem is not to worry about the end. Our problem is God has given us something to do. Let's do it. The end is secured. God will save his own. Not one, not one person that God has elected or predestined unto salvation will be lost. You save his own. But our job is to preach the gospel. That's our own. Actually, in a sense, eh, let me put this humanly speaking. If we don't preach, people will not be saved. Humanly speaking. The same way we can say biblically that if we don't pray, things will not change. So if we don't go out and preach, people will not be saved. That means preaching again is the means, humanly speaking. Again, when we looked at providence, we said God, despite the fact that he has ordained means to ends, can walk above, beneath, under, without means. He can walk without means. But the normal means through which this end will come about is that preaching has to be done. The other question about Christ as offer and offering, um, maybe we'll look at it more next week. Basically, he's saying that Christ is the one who offered himself. Christ was not forced. He offered himself. The priest goes on the day of atonement and offers a bull, first of all, for himself before he does his business with the two goats in Leviticus chapter 16. He's the one who is taking the offering. The bull, Aaron takes is his offering. Huh? And Aaron is the offerer, right? So Aaron, offerer, and offering, slaughters, bonds, bond offering, whatever. 
Here we're saying Christ is the Lamb of God and Christ is the one who is offering himself. So Christ is both the Lamb and the priest. So in John chapter 1, verse 29, John said, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the, the, the sins of the world. But in, in Hebrews 7, 8, we see that Christ is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So he's both the high priest who is making the sacrifice. So it's not human, it's not like he did it like as he's carrying himself and going to the cross. But the implication of what he did is that he himself offered himself and is the one who also was the offering. Okay, so um, uh, considering this uh, idea of particular redemption and mm. the rest, how do we reconcile this text in Matthew 23, verse 37? Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as the hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? And there's also another text where the Bible talks of God not taking delight in it. God not? Not taking delight. Delight, yes, in the death of the wicked. Okay, so what's the challenge with this text now? Now he's saying that he's trying to gather uh, so but he's they are willing to gather them. And so it shows in a sense that there's, as, as, just in line with what we had in Second Peter 3, that God actually wills now to save these folks, but they are actively rejecting. Okay, is the question related to this one? Yes. Okay, ask your question now. Ask, ask, because of time, yes. I was going to ask, what's the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in terms of... Evangelism? No, particular redemption. But there's no human responsibility in particular redemption. What's the relationship between Okay, okay. Let me start with this question, then I'll come to you. So the question is about basically the wills of God. Eh? Is it possible for God to will to do something? And because of the hardness of heart of the creature... The will of God does not happen. Do you understand? So God wants to save Emeka. But Emeka says he does not want to be saved. That's basically what's happened here in Matthew chapter 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I want to save you. And Jerusalem is saying, I don't want to be saved. Is it possible then that God will have something in his will that doesn't come to pass? Again, a helpful way to look at, one helpful way to look at this question other people might provide other helpful way from the scripture, is to understand the two wills of God. So there is the will of God that is not, um, that is not privy to man. So that the decretive will of God or the secret will of God that nobody knows. But there is a will of God that is given to us in his word, the one we know. And according to the will of God we know, we are supposed to preach the gospel to all men, praying that the people we preach to will be saved. Abi, now if we go and say God has asked me to preach for to for you to be saved, and the person is not saved, are we going to can we say in that sense that God wanted the person to be saved based on His word? Abi, are we together? And the person is not saved, we can say that humanly speaking, that God actually look at the, put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the word of God to you. 
like the pastor comes on Sunday and he says, all those under my voice have shown you today the way of salvation and this is what God has shown you through his word. Obey. And people say, I'm not going to put my faith in Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter, sorry, I can't, so 23. So it does not negate the fact that when preaching is done or in God's revealed will, which is the Bible, God is offering salvation to people and saying, come, and people say, we are not coming. That is how it is, that the revealed will of God is not always obeyed. That's one way to put it. So God said, do not kill, do not murder, and people reject it. The same way God said, come to Christ, Isaiah chapter 55, he said, come and buy, come and drink, buy. People say they know they come. Come and eat without pay. Come and, they say they know they come. And all over the Old Testament, that's how God dealt with Israel. Over and over again, return to me. Jeremiah cried his life out, return to me, and they refused to return. It does not mean that God was willing in his decretive will that this thing should happen, and it did not happen. That would go against what we know about God's decree. That God can decree something and man will reject it. No, it doesn't work that way. Also, in God's, um, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, okay, um, so sometimes we say salvation is all of God's work. I like that statement and I don't like it. Again, there are people who will disagree with me. But I'm going to explain what I mean by I don't like it when we say salvation is all of God's work. I like us to be more particular. So there's something we call the order of salvation, which we'll look at. So after chapter, after paragraph eight of the conf- after chapter eight of the confession, chapter 9, 10, 11, 12, we begin to deal with things like effectual calling, adoption, justification, all of those things. Now, when we're talking about salvation, there are actually certain aspects in the order of salvation that is purely the work of God. When I say the work of God, there is no impute for man at all. But there are parts of the work of salvation where man has an input. For example, in conversion, you must put your faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. You must take your will and say, this is Jesus Christ. I dump my will inside Jesus Christ to be saved. So in that sense now, conversion is the work of man. I'm being very careful. It's still the work of God because faith is a gift from God. That's what the Bible says. But in conversion, we, must, we are the ones who repent from our sins. We turn 180 degrees and turn the other way. So that's the relationship. But when it comes to particular redemption, it's God who does it. Jesus Christ goes, the Father has given him a people from eternity past, before anything was created, okay? Then he comes in time and goes and accomplishes their redemption and applies it effectually to them in time. So that's what it means. We're out of time. We'll continue next week. So if the questions you asked were not answered properly, just get back to me. If God spares our lives and I'm taking the Bible study next week, we'll go through them. Does anybody have anything to say by way of contribution to these things? Anybody? By way of contribution, let us pray then. Our Father who is in heaven, we are so grateful that you consider us privileged to have your word and that we are able to look into your word and receive refreshment for our souls. We're able to look into your word and receive instruction. We're able to look into your word and receive really, really great encouragement to be reminded of how we were saved and to be reminded of the surety and the certainness that we'll be redeemed, our bodies will be redeemed in the future. God, we ask that you take these truths we have learned and use it to work in our hearts 
as we go home to rest, to work, to sleep, as we spend the rest of the week as well in one activity or the other, help us to remember that you have redeemed us in your Son and help us to rejoice in this gift of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us tonight. We've asked all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.